0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to My Millennial Money Glenn James speaking here. Today, I'm on the podcast with Emily Wallace. She's actually the co-host of My Millennial Property, along with John Pigeon. She is a buyer's advocate, buyer's agent out of Melbourne. She's been with our team for oh, a couple of years now. Anytime she speaks about property, I listen. A lot of you have used her services. A lot of you had great results. And we just do a Q&A today, particularly our first home buyers, but it really goes in a lot of wild directions. So, strap in, enjoy it, and just have a look in the show notes. Emily's got some courses that she runs for first-home buyers. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you're serious about spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on your first home, spend $100 on a freaking course and get some, like, little 1%ers, you know what I mean? Like, we can't ever be afraid to invest in education, particularly around some self-paced learning that's set at everyday language And any of the courses that we've got on our education platform, education.mymillennial.money, they're really in everyday language just to help you. And it is one way that we make money to bring these podcasts to you uh, at no cost. So yeah, we, we are running a business. Just letting you know, the resources are there. You can support our podcast that way and ultimately add value into your life. So let's have a listen to this episode I did with Emily Wallace from My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace, welcome back to My Millennial Money. How's it going over there at My Millennial Property?
2: It's going very well, all things property. We love talking about property.
1: We do. And you've been having some uh, different listeners come on and share their story lately.
2: We have indeed. It's so good to hear people actually on the ground out there looking at property and hearing their journey.
1: So, if you do have any property questions in the Facebook group, just put the hashtag My Millennial Property because I understand you and John look at that hashtag for content for your show.
2: Totally. Even just hashtag property or tag John or I. Um, we're pretty across the face. Well, I'm pretty across the face. I know, <laughs> I know
1: right? That's wild. But uh, we're going to get right into it. Mm-hmm. Heaps of questions came through. We put it out on Instagram. Any questions for a buyer's advocate? Now, how we're going to do this is I'm going to ask Emily a heap of questions about her profession and being a buyer's advocate and all the stuff. Then, after the break, we'll talk a little bit around first home buyers uh, because that is Emily's specialty. Now, I think the best question Miss Her Ev. <laughs> Some of you people with your Instagram names far out. Anyway, someone asked, let's start from the start. What are they, lol? So, what is a buyer's advocate or a buyer's agent if you're somewhere else in Australia other than Melbourne?
2: Certainly, that's a great place to start. So, a buyer's advocate, buyer's agent, or BA for short, is what we often refer to them as, purely represents the buyer in the property transaction. A vendor has a real estate agent representing their best interests and being paid by them. A buyer's advocate or a buyer's agent is only engaged by their buyer to source inspect and negotiate property on behalf of that client.
1: So just so people understand, a vendor is
2: A vendor is a seller.
1: Yeah. So, so someone selling a home. Yeah, cool. So you basically only deal with someone buying.
2: Correct. I don't. Uh, my pet peeve, and anyone in the industry will know this. The pet peeve is when someone says, "Oh, how many homes have you sold?" I'm like, "I don't sell anything; I buy them."
1: Yeah. Wow. So there you go. That's what they are. There's another question here uh, from Lani Borman. Please give us an overview of their role slash benefits of having one.
2: So, great question.
1: What do you do day to day?
2: It's so varied, but I guess the the biggest thing in having an advocate is trying to get. A, getting really clear on your strategy, but B is also having access to more properties than what you can find yourself. So a lot of our days are spent, the team and I, trying to find properties in a different way. So a lot of that's through off-market and off-market means the property is not online, not accessible to the general public. And we can unpack that in more depth in a minute. Uh, Sometimes we're going to the seller directly to find them through there. Sometimes we're actually letterbox dropping or door knocking. And sometimes we're pulling up uh, sales data from years ago to try and get access to a vendor directly. So, there's a lots of different ways to find the property. But then I'm also spending time inspecting them. My colleagues are videoing them. We're doing data analysis. We're doing reports of the suburbs. There's a lot that actually goes into why one particular property is the best option for a client, uh, not just the property itself. It's a lot to do with the macro factors at play.
1: A question here from Swathi underscore art do they help with developing a strategy?
2: So, it's probably more relevant in the investment space of a buyer's advocate. I personally only buy family homes and first homes, but certainly in terms of a strategy of, you know, are you looking for a property with more um, capital growth or is it more about the rental yield? That's more in the investment space and a good advocate should definitely be working out a strategy with you.
1: One of the things um, that I wanted to ask, and it's not a question that someone wrote in on Instagram. Mm. Like, does everyone need a buyer's advocate? Should everyone have a buyer's advocate?
2: That's a really great question. And the answer is, well, I'd love to say yes, everyone definitely needs us. But the answer to that is it's more about, A, have you bought multiple properties before? Because I think a lot of it comes down to the experience of actually going through the motions and knowing what step comes next. And that in itself is an investment to have someone hold your hand through that and know where the mistakes are. But B, how many contacts in the real estate space do you have? Because some people reach me and they're like, Emily, every agent in this 5K radius knows you by name. I've been looking for two years. They've given me all their off market stock. What else could you possibly find me? And in that case, I probably can't Mm. if you're known by name and you're actually actively speaking with them if you want to spend your time being best friends with real estate agents, then maybe, you know, having a buyer's advocate actually isn't the solution for you. But I would say that's a minority. I feel like the majority could definitely benefit from having someone on their side.
1: You work a lot with first home buyers yes. uh, in this space. And you personally, you're pretty niche to one area in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So, just tell us about, I guess, your business and the areas that you do. Um, And then also, what I want to get at is, how do we overcome the barrier of actually investing into someone like you and your services?
2: Sure. Yeah, for sure. So, starting with area geographically where we cover. So, um, shout out to those who are listening in Melbourne, are familiar with Melbourne or maybe moving to Melbourne. Uh, very much the Bayside corridor. So, for example, from Port Melbourne all the way down to about Mordialic along one line. And then we also do the inner southeast, which is basically the train lines that follow out to Bayside. Um, So, for example, Ormond, Glen Huntley, Carnegie. And then we have a a pocket that's grown, which is in the northern corridor, so many first home buyers, pretty much from the city centre all the way out to Reservoir. So, north, inner southeast and Bayside
1: you talked about when a good advocate will go out there and, you know, tear down your area, right? And we will get to the costs and all that soon, but I just want to talk about this around. And actually there's a question here from Kath underscore quad (laughs) One 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 One. How can you tell the difference between a good one, an average one, a crap one and a brilliant one? Mm -hmm. Now, I would hypothesize that, one single buyer's advocate who was just doing Victoria as a state might not have the same delivery capabilities than someone like yourself who's ultra niche. Yeah. So, if someone is looking after this episode even to find a buyer's advocate, Mm -hmm. how can they know the difference between a good one or a bad one or an average one or a killer one?
2: Totally. So there's a couple of questions to be asking an advocate when you're effectively interviewing them to see, you know, can you work together? And they'll be interviewing you too. Um, But probably number one is looking at their track record of purchases, it's all well and good to be you know, a buyer's advocate for 10 plus years, but if you're only purchasing maybe six to eight properties a year, you're not getting the exposure. So, a good ballpark of a reference of volume would definitely be in excess of 30 properties per year, probably closer to 50 plus.
1: So, are you saying like you'd have to ask them how many properties they've moved, because this wouldn't be publicly available information.
2: No. And I think at some point it will be, but at the moment you would need to ask them, and that's a very fair and reasonable question to be asking them. Uh, Some advocates, or certainly we do, and I know others that do, will give you a list of all the properties they have bought, because and probably to the next point, a good advocate or a great advocate even should have off-market properties available for you. And that really comes down to their agent relationships. But The reason we have a spreadsheet of everything we've purchased is because you can't find half of it online because it was off market. So keeping a running record of that.
1: So are you saying like a good slash great advocate might be doing a property-ish a
2: week? Yeah, definitely. How How, how many do you do? We did fifty one last year, nearly nearly one a week. Wow. one a week. And look, that doesn't mean someone doing 40 is not a great advocate. It's more just are they constantly going through the motions of buying property? Uh, and are they actually working in the geographical location that you want to buy? They might know of it, mm. but a good advocate will actually say no more than they'll say yes. Because sticking to where you're really good at and where you got the agent contacts, which is basically how successful the business is, is how many agent contacts are they friends with? And maybe that's a question you could ask. You say, look, I'm looking in um, Byron Bay, you know, who were who are you most friendly with there? And maybe play dumb a little bit. Maybe you do know who the key players are and just just let them talk and list off the names of who they commonly speak to in the area. And then you'll know if they really do know their, their um, area.
1: Wow. So, if I'm looking for a buyer's advocate I can first ask, hey, how many properties are you doing a year? Yep. And that's that's not an insult to- No,
2: I think we'll just say- you know, if you don't mind me asking, you know, how many properties are you buying a year? If you can share that.
1: And is it worth asking who do you mainly buy for? Like what's your ideal client?
2: Yeah, definitely. Ideal client um, based off the type of purchase, but also geographically. Yep.
1: And what about, you just said the type of purchase, like will you only do family homes or you get into like villas and townhouses?
2: Totally, yeah. First and family homes, our overarching criteria is it has to be a property someone resides in. Right. It might become an investment down the track and we can factor that in, but the primary purpose is governed by the area they want to live in and that's how we go. But some advocates will do both investing and home ownership.
1: And I apologize that I'm asking you personally about your no, business no, because it. I just think it's a good example. Uh, and Emily's been kind enough just to, um, she hasn't got any notes or anything prepped. I'm just throwing a <laughs> rapid <just> fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, why did you choose first home buyers as or homes to live in mm. as opposed to investors and working with investors?
2: So, first and foremost, I feel one of my strengths is definitely taking the emotion out of a situation and home buying is so emotional like it literally is an emotional roller coaster so that was one area that I really want to focus on but probably the biggest thing is there wasn't a lot out there just specifically focusing on home ownership. A lot was investor heavy and, you know, getting great results on investments and returns. There wasn't a focus on, hey, I can actually find your properties and beat the competition in an off-market setting to get you into your own home sooner. So, that's the angle that I took. And I've since been, you know, in that space, I've found out it's actually quite a niche space to be in and to completely discount investments altogether.
1: So, you... Uh, and your own business, like because you niche down on a certain suburb, certain type of profile, you only work with... I think I'm looking at your whiteboard behind. There's 12 (laughs) names on the list.
2: There's 12 names on the list uh, currently. We used to only take 10, but we've got a new team member. So, we've upped it to 12. That's our maximum. And then we have a wait list. um, And we don't take competing profiles. So, we can't be working. I mean, imagine- Okay, just
1: just wait on that. (laughs) Is that a question that I could ask a buyer's advocate if I'm looking for one?
2: Indeed. I'd just say, look, if there was someone else that inquired or is already on your books with a similar profile to what I'm looking for, what do you do? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Just another question just came to mind that you should ask them is around do they only, A, are they only paid by the buyer? Because that ensures they're independent. And what I mean by that is very rare, but sometimes buyers' advocates share commissions with a selling agent. Now, that is not independent.
1: Right, yes. You think about that. Yes.
2: So they could be biased towards a particular selling agent who has a property because they're getting a kickback from it. So what you want to ensure is are you completely independent and only paid by me, your buyer, in the process? And you also want to ultimately make sure they're not part of any selling because if you're on the side of the fence of buying, you don't want to then go find out that they're all, you know, involved in selling properties as well, because it is a bit of a conflict of interest.
1: Does that cause trouble in your industry to be saying that stuff that could shat on other business models?
2: Not necessarily. I think the consumers, you know, ultimately decide, mm. and the clients decide. I think it's good to be aware that-
1: Well, I, I think, yeah, you're right. Like, it's good to be aware mm. and most conflicts should be managed and be able to manage if disclosed. Yep but by asking that question, it will maybe help you choose which advocate you use if you're asking three or four. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry, I did interrupt you there because uh, I just thought, hang on, that's a a gold thing with um, competing properties.
2: Yep. And profiles. Yep. And and
1: profiles. Let's talk about fees
2: and costs. Yes.
1: So, there was a question here. Cara Murillo said, why are they so expensive? And then, Uh, Kath also said, how much should you spend on one? Uh, What else? There's another question here. Uh, There was a question about fees, commissions and all that. Yep. But effectively, this is an interesting thing. Like, why are they so expensive? Well, why are good premium cars so expensive compared to a Hyundai or Kia?
2: Yep.
1: So, I mean, there's an... There's a element of market forces, isn't there? Yeah. Like for you, you've got a limited of twelve people, particular area, we're niched up. It's and it's so funny, like, you know, John does his clarity call and Shell does her clarity call for the My Millennial uh property podcast, right? Yeah. And, you know, Shell charges out at three hundred and I think for Mm -hmm. the clarity call session and I know this has got nothing to do with property but I'm going somewhere (laughs) and the the problem is if Shell charged $40 for an hour of her time she would have no time because it'd be unlimited back-to-back appointments so we have to get to the point where there's a a good barrier Mm -hmm. that one frees her time up yep and it's highly valuable yes and if you are willing to pay, you obviously will get hundred percent of her focused on. Totally. Where and that's the whole thing with market forces and you know, you could go down to capitalist world and all that stuff. Like if there was, you know, a medical specialist, there might be one medical specialist only for your special condition. where they can charge whatever they want. Yeah. So that's all well and good to say, you know, <laughs> that's cute, Glenn. But let's talk about fees with buyer's advocates. Definitely. Um, Are there different fee models between businesses? What do you do? Uh, What doesn't work? What's a trap? Blah, blah, blah.
2: Certainly. So, there are two main fee structures in the industry itself. And one which I would refer to as a bit more traditional, old school maybe even, is a percentage-based model. And so, what that means is an advocate Uh, the going rates are anywhere from one5 to 2.5% of your purchase price. That is what the fee is. Usually there's some form of fixed retainer. It might be a couple of thousand up front, maybe between two and 5,000 up front, and then the remainder upon the successful purchase. The reason it's more of a traditional model is the way Buyers' advocates came about in the first place was a lot of ex selling agents. And in the selling world, you charge a percentage of the sale of the home, which is obviously very beneficial in a sale setting, right? Because mm. the vendor or the, the seller is not giving anything away until it's sold. In the buying world, when a buyer's advocate is trying to save you money, it's very hard to justify okay, you've got a sliding budget between 700 and 800,000. And hey, look, I found this property at 800,000, that I really think is the best fit for you. But also, off the back of that, I'm getting a higher commission because I'm charging percentage. So, that's one model and probably less favourable.
1: That was the same like in the financial planning world and it's not as much anymore. Like when I started my business a million years ago, you know, if someone had X amount invested with you, you charge a percentage. Yeah. I never really vibed that because for me, it's like, well, whether I'm managing 800000 or $1.2 yep. it's the same.
2: Yes, Totally. <laughs> Effort and time invested, yeah. yeah.
1: And why should I get more just because there's a better outcome in terms of the market where my job's the same? So, it kind of removes some layer of embedded conflict as well.
2: Yeah, 100%. So, then the other model, which is a fixed fee model, which is the model that we use, is made up of a retainer. So, for the advocate to be retained and give you access to off-market properties and start working for you, and then a success fee upon an unconditional sale. Usually it's at unconditional, sometimes it is actually at the settlement, but generally speaking, the advocate has actually completed their job once the sale is unconditional, so that's generally when they charge their success fee. The only um, differences in the fixed fee model would be, and we do ours by quote, on some cases is when the uh, profile is super refined or very difficult. Difficult in that there's not a lot of stock and we're really going to have to work to find that as opposed to a stock standard um, purchase that there's lots of properties there. Oh,
1: okay. So, if someone said, uh, I want three bed, garage, toilet, second toilet optional or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's a, a home, right? But if someone's like, I need porcelain, Sinks in every even the, the laundry and I want uh yes if you could uh a tiled garage and <laughs> please we need a uh a, what's the 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 toilet it's flusher. Bit, the <laughs> birdot or, or whatever. <laughs> so where it's like, okay, well we could be looking for freaking eight years for you and you know, so
2: so, it's, prob- it's that, but it's also geographically bound. So, I've got some clients who only want one particular quadrant of a suburb, and there are only X amount of houses, so there are only X amount of opportunities, I'm going to have to work really hard to make sure one of them pulls through, mm. as opposed to someone who's got a cluster of six suburbs, and would he be happy in any of those suburbs, so my choice of where I can actually find those properties from is much bigger. Right. So, that plays into it as well. But generally speaking, our fixed fees, we charge one third up front, of the re- which is the retainer, which is sits at around $5,000. And then the success fee is payable upon the unconditional contract. And it's the average success fee is at around $9,000.
1: So, you're roughly charging circa 15, 14, yep. 15. Yeah. Because I was just like doing some numbers here, an 850 property, yep. if you did a percentage fee, it could be sitting around 17,000.
2: Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you don't really care unless it is someone who wants the porcelain or whatever and uh, if we could have the chandelier, players and, you know, run of the mill, you're happy to kind of work with that.
2: Totally. And we've also got enough statistics now to indicate that a purchase under a million dollars is actually likely to transact faster than um, getting into the sort of 1 to 1.5 and even, you know, beyond two marks. So, price, location... And accommodation plays into the fee.
1: Now, if someone, and again, I am using your business as a a case study. However, these concepts should work with most buyers, advocates all around Australia uh, conceptually. Like, do you, or have you heard of any agents or advocates, sorry, Mm -hmm. uh, like- how do you guarantee that someone's going to give you the success fee? Like, is there some type of clause in the contract where it settles or is it going to trust or escrow, as the Europeans might say? So, have you had trouble collecting the success fee?
2: To date, no, hmm. I haven't. So, we have a service agreement that that is actually individual to my own business that so was written by a commercial lawyer. They sign it upon engaging our services Uh, the interesting part is and I think the reason we've never had a success fee not paid in fact some people are like Emily where's your invoice please send it which is great but outside of that is because it's an unconditional sale we also see the client again at the pre-settlement inspection so we're going to see them again after you know the invoice has been sent and things so it's very unlikely someone wouldn't pay us but they are bound by the service agreement to pay the money it doesn't sit in trust or anything Um, it's just paid into a bank transfer into our account
1: yeah right Uh, so, just on that, um, if we can get a bit more practical around the the use of a buyer's advocate. Yeah. And I wonder like, are you able to share with us a, a conceptual case study of maybe one of your last properties, uh, the clients, what they're looking for? Uh, totally. Just to give people an idea of uh, the type of work you do. So, keep your mind thinking about that. But this whole thing of, I'm trying to buy my first home. hmm Uh, It's really tough to save a deposit because most of the time in Australia, we can service a mortgage for our first home, no problem.
2: Yeah.
1: It's getting that deposit. Totally. Now, it's, I would say, somewhat privileged for people to be able to have that extra $15,000 to help outsource the work of finding a property. So, is there this dance with, I would execute Emily or other advocates around Australia because you can't help someone in Perth. Yeah. (laughs) Um, When I'm time poor Mm -hmm. and money's not the problem, it's because I've got myself and my partner or whatever, we higher income earners, we work 50 hours a week, we just don't have the time. Or somebody who just needs some help on the confidence side and really wanting to uncover properties that aren't on domain. Because I know on the My Millennial Property Podcast, John talks about you know, there are so many properties that don't even get on the internet.
2: Yeah, totally. There's like at least a third of the market doesn't reach the internet. So yeah, there's a, a couple of reasons why people would reach out to an advocate more broadly, as you specified, time poor, but cash isn't an issue and they're happy to invest and outsource. The most common one is actually by the point of people trying so hard, they've been in the market for at least three months on their own. They've missed out on one or more properties And now they're like, we know what we want. We're prepared to pay someone to actually go and find it. And we're good decision makers. And when that property comes, we know that being in the competition will actually save us the fee that we've invested.
1: And that's what I'm getting at. Like, if you can dig up a property that doesn't even get online for the $15,000 fee that you would charge, they're going to get one, a property that they might not have seen otherwise, but two, maybe 100 grand, 50 grand less than what the market quote unquote may have paid if it went to auction.
2: The greatest example of this, if I can share. Please. So, I had someone reach out to me who was unsure about my fee. And interestingly enough, I had walked into an off-market property that would have suited them perfectly. And I said, look, I can't give you the address. You haven't engaged me yet, but FYI, this is great property would suit you. And he said, look, I'm going to go alone for another month and then I'll circle back to you if, if I don't buy it. Now, the property I walked into, I could have bought it for 750 off market, two-bedroom apartment, 750 I can see and where this is going. <laughs> and anyway, I put myself a four-week reminder to touch, in, touch base with this guy. And I said, have you had any luck buying? He said, yes, I bought at auction today. This is four weeks later. When <gasps> the property went online, went to an auction campaign. Just have a guess how much this property sold for. Just a guess, Glenn.
1: I'm going to go eight ninety.
2: Okay, it's a bit high. Oh, it was okay. seven to seven fifty, but that was the quote range. I could have bought it at seven fifty. It sold for eight to twenty two. I could have saved him seventy two grand. Wow. So, uh, look, that's one example. But what that really indicates is that vendor would have sold at seven fifty. It's mm. the market that's driving the price, and if you can knock out competition, that is worth fifteen grand.
1: Exactly, and that comes down to strategy and. Adjusting our mindset to be able to stomach using some of these principles. Exactly. Okay, question. Mm. If somebody um, was going to a buyer's advocate and I called you and said, Emily, um, I'm unsure if I want to use a buyer's advocate. I'm after X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. in your area-ish. What's stock like? Like, are you looking for people to buy or is it like, can I get a general vibe of is it too savage? Like, would you give or would buyer's advocate say, yeah, we've, we're always obviously looking for people to buy because we know there's this hidden market of people wanting to sell or... Yeah. Th- how do we get a bit of a gauge of, you know, whether we need the buyer's advocate or not if we've got the money?
2: Sure. And you're trying to work out whether they've got off markets yes. they can give you or not. Yeah. So, generally speaking... A good advocate would never rely on what's been given to them. So, the agent saying, hey, I've got this property. They would be outbound calling, texting, emailing. The agent saying, what have you got for this client? Sure. So, the only gauge you could really get is by what's coming through their inbox organically yep. and just generally, you know, how do they feel about the market. But you will never get a true indication until you start working with them. And nine times out of 10, you'll be surprised by how much actually comes through.
1: Mm. So, when I sign on a contract with the buyer's advocate- Yep. Um- I pay the $5,000 retainer.
2: Yep, thereabouts, yep.
1: Whatever it is. Is there a window of if I can't get your property within X amount of time,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, we part ways or if we need another three months, there's another retainer?
2: Yeah, so good pickup. So our service agreement is 90 days. Right. And the reason uh, it is that way is because it should be in line with pre-approval, right? You don't want to go renewing pre-approval sure. over and over. Some um, advocates will do six. I know some that do 12 months. It's just to me, that's way too long in one market mm. to be fishing around. So if we did hit a 9 day period, I've always hypothetically said that we would reassess, you know, are we getting close or are we getting further apart from where the brief is? Um but again, back to the point of what would make a good or a great advocate is in the initial meeting of your buyer profile, if that buyer can't show you at least three properties in, in the last three months that they would have bought had they'd been ready in budget and area, it probably doesn't exist. And because that's what we go off to replicate what the buyer wants to find. And so, if you did uh, engage an advocate where that wasn't the case, and you thought they could perform a miracle, and in 90 days in, and there's been nothing, well, that's probably the advocate's fault for not being honest with Setting you. Setting expectations. Totally. And there's some times where I've had phone calls where I feel like I'm really, you know, breaking people's hearts saying, like, what you're looking for does not exist. Mm. But I'd rather that than them going around for another three months and just getting further from where they should be. So if
1: someone calls you, like, thirsty for a buyer's advocate, yep. like, you would pretty much say, I'm not taking you $5,000 because I can't actually pull that rabbit out of that hat.
2: Literally, like two days ago, I said that to someone. What, uh, the only way I could work with you is if you change this, this, and this. If not, I do wish you the best of luck. But based off my knowledge, I cannot find what you're looking for.
1: Right. And I guess that does, again, make a good advocate. Yeah, say um, no. Yeah. Now, at the end of the three months, if you couldn't find the exact one, hmm. I guess as an advocate, you would be saying to the customer, hey, I think, you know, it's not me. It's kind of not you. It's the market. I need another month. Like at what point do you go, look, give us another two and a half grand or do you reset hypothetically for another three months? Because the retainer is there for you to be Doing the work and getting back paid. Yeah. But hypothetically, if there wasn't a property at the end of that three months, Mm. there's no refund of that.
2: No, there's no Money. refund of that. Yep. And um, look, case by case scenario, if it was generally the market factors at play, then I would probably say, look, I'm willing to do another month at no extra cost yeah. to you just Judgement to do call. it. Yeah. yeah, but if it was more like, okay, we've been four for three properties that you've missed out on and your budget's not meeting the market. If you want to keep engaging us, there will be a further retainer. And usually we've always hypothetically said like 50% of the original retainer. I was going to say that is it like days. half of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. And- What Before we kind of take a break and move on to just some first homeowner questions, Mm. what are the kind of main questions you'd be asking people if they called you wanting to engage other than send us some examples of what you would have bought if you had the money and money wasn't an option or whatever? Yeah,
2: yeah. Definitely, usually it's a case of, you know, how long have you been looking for? Sometimes people call us too early, to be very honest. Like, they've just started looking and I'm like, you know, we, we would go f- from here to there and it's like a 15K radius. So, I'm like, that's a lot to work with. And
1: I think you, you really want to be sure if you pull the trigger with someone like Emily, you know, you'll waste your retainer if you don't actually, if you're actually not ready to buy. Totally. Because your team and all the BAs around Australia... They're getting paid to dig up properties. Yep. They're going to pull that trigger. So, don't waste your money and their time if you're not nailed. And I think those introduction calls should filter that out a bit.
2: Definitely. That's what they're there for, discovery calls, mm. to understand where they're at and maybe it's too soon. Um, you know, we always say to people, we could find you your dream property in week two and you need to be prepared that that could be the case because it's happened a lot. And if you're, if your reaction to that is, oh, my God, that's too soon, then it's too soon to have us. If it's, oh my God, that would be amazing. That would be just be the greatest thing ever. Then it's time to engage an advocate.
1: And I think that's a good thing as well. Like if you're engaging an advocate, from the moment you pick up the phone in your mind, if you find that advocate, be prepared to move either in two months, three months or one month. Yeah. Or get that ball rolling.
2: Totally. Yeah. 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 The other questions that we would be asking is understanding who else is influencing the purchase. So, um, sometimes there are... Other people helping, you know, parents, friends, or opinions that do matter in the purchase. And so we just want to make sure that our advice is being trusted and not necessarily influenced by um, other parameters. It should really only be the people who are on title or paying the mortgage or paying rent towards the mortgage that are the decision makers in the process. We don't, you know, we don't need auntie and uncle and everyone else along in the process. It just gets way too confusing.
1: At what point? And excuse me, I'm now standing up. I'm not talking (laughs) down to you. I just wanted to stand up. Um, At what point, you know, are we getting financial pre-approval? Am I getting at least a discussion happening with a mortgage broker before I start looking for a buyer's advocate? Or am I kind of lining some ducks up at the same time? Because there's no point engaging you if the broker's like, you still you know, you've got the money but you need to be employed another month before we can get the pre-approval or something like that.
2: Exactly, yeah. So, definitely sort of alongside each other. I always say um, book a discovery call once your pre-approval is lodged. Sweet. And then, so by the time you've actually got it returned to you, we can probably line up the next step which is to buy a profile session Mm. where we actually nut it out properly. Uh, That's probably the best thing but even before any of that, go out and look at some properties. Don't engage an advocate if you haven't even stepped foot in a home and you've only looked online.
1: Yeah. And what percentage of um, like you do first home owners yep. and family homes, yep. like the list of 12 names there, like I can see, you know, Mary and Todd and all the names. Yes. I've made those names up everyone. Um, <laughs> like what percentage is lit- legitimately first home buyers versus upsizes with families?
2: That's a great question. So, There's only three family home buyers on that list, one downsizer and the rest are first home buyers. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, and just to paint a picture, it's usually what we always say, young professional couple with a dog, they want space in the backyard, they're potentially planning baby number one and it's their entry level home. That's Mm. who usually engages us and it's under a million dollars most of the time. Mm.
1: There's a question here from Cam do you think there needs to be a higher barrier of entry to become a buyer's advocate? So, that's interesting. Can I rock up tomorrow and register glennjamesba.com.au and say, hi, everyone, I'm a buyer's advocate. Like, do I need any licensing? Do I need anything? Or can I just go, hey, mate, yeah, I'll find your property. It ain't no thing. Like, <laughs> what's the lay the land at the moment and should it change?
2: It definitely should change. The lay of the land at the moment is actually very unregulated. So, it is advised that you need a full real estate license to be operating as an advocate. If you're operating under someone else, you can have like the sub license.
1: So you're saying it's advised.
2: Yeah, there's by the problem the industry. Yes, the but, problem. Sorry, by consumer affairs and across the you know like right. the whole board.
1: Yeah, a triple C or whatever. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's not mandated. I've never had anyone check for my license. I just renew it every year. The issue that I have and that most of the industry have is the license and what you learn in the license is all about selling real estate. It is nothing to do with buying. And so one of my own personal goals for the industry is to actually devise a program that teaches advocates how to be an advocate and to get a license that's specific to being a buyer's advocate. Because at the moment, I can tell you three months of study I did to get a full license, Nothing I learnt in that course applies to my day-to-day life now mm. at all. Yeah. So, full real estate licence and uh, professional indemnity insurance are your bare minimum to be operating. It is much harder to get a full licence now. In most states, the legislation has changed. So, you would need some real estate experience in order to get that full licence.
1: Which you want anyway, realistically. You want to know the process. Yes.
2: Totally. Yeah. 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 So, yes, the barrage entry is too low. It does need to be amended, But as far as the consumer is aware, you need to ask if if they have a full license and if they have insurance.
1: Mm. Davina Bajwa, if that's how I pronounce your surname, red flags in buyer's agents. So do you see any big red flags?
2: Big red flags would definitely be if everything they're buying is on market. That would be a red flag to me. And if they're promoting like sold stickers in front of you know auction boards, there is a place for advocates to be auction bidding and representing you, absolutely. But if every single purchase is through that method, it would say to me, the red flag would be, do you actually have the agent contacts to pull properties that are not going to auction and that are off market? Yeah, that would um, be the biggest thing.
1: Do you ever, um, as part of that service... Uh, Do auction bidding for people?
2: Yeah, definitely. And is that a
1: pay extra or?
2: No, all inclusive. So, all property types and all methods of sale are included in our 90-day service agreement. Mm -hmm. We do find ourselves bidding, um, but more often than not, like 70% of the time, we buy an off-market. Yeah.
1: And do you think that's pretty, like if someone's listening in Malula Bar at the moment, like it'd be pretty standard up there that um, you'd expect that uh, it would be the same thing, that here's the fee- We'll get you the property if we have to go to auction, if you're not comfortable to go to auction.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, just- And you'll
1: straight up negotiate off market with price as well.
2: Yeah. When you engage a buyer's advocate for a full service, you should never need to speak for yourself. The advocate will always be advocating for you on your behalf. You don't need to deal with a real estate agent.
1: Can I be kept anonymous?
2: Oh, good question. We have have situations where that's been the case. Uh, obviously, the barrier to that is when you sign, unless you're buying under a mysterious trust name or something. Um, but I mean,
1: all like, up until the signing. Yeah. Yeah. Because
2: you can. You can yeah. totally remain anonymous.
1: Yeah. Because everything in life is a negotiation, isn't it? Mm. Actually, you know what I want to do one day? Yeah. And I reckon we should get a few people to do it. You know how I did? Oh, you probably don't know, but anyway, I did a uh, a week long course at Stanford. Oh, uh, in two thousand and sixteen on strategic leadership. So you yep. fly in, you stay on site, and it's five days of like learning. Wow. There's a course that I want to do in the executive education uh, team, which
2: yep.
1: um, which is on negotiations. Cool. For a week long course Love it. on negotiations. Love it. I reckon we should do that and get some Definitely. get some people and listeners who are keen on like negotiating, because I find it as a sport for me. Yeah. Um, I love it.
2: Isn't it just? Um, I assume you've listened to or read Chris Voss's. No. Oh, you haven't? Oh, Chris, get on to Chris Voss. What is that? He's like the master of negotiation. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That is a good starting point.
1: Well, there you go. I've I've learned something. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's take a quick break and we'll be back to talk about maybe...
0: post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Okay. First home buyers. If you've already purchased your first home, you can turn off now. We don't need you. (laughs) We don't, we don't want you get out of here, kids. Uh, But it's tough out there. I don't care. Like we're standing, where are we on St. Kilda road right now? It's, it's wild here. It's wild where I live. It's wild in Brisbane. I'm sure it's wild wherever you're listening to this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's uh, it's not getting any easier. You work a lot in the first home buy space. Yes. Mm-hmm. You've got an online course that we host on education.mymillennial.money uh, for first home buyers. Mm-hmm. What's maybe the number one, two or three things that you would say to a first home buyer conceptually, but also if they are in a market that is just savage?
2: I think the number one thing that pops up for first home buyers is always around deposit and accumulating that faster and how do I, you know, my servicing is fine but my deposit's what's letting me down. So, my first, very first tip would be, A, get familiar with LMI and understand if it's appropriate for you and seek out a broker to do that. LMI being lender's mortgage insurance.
1: And and how does that work?
2: So, lenders mortgage insurance is an insurance in place that's actually insuring the bank or the lender when you have a higher loan to value ratio. So, you might be, for example, borrowing 90% of the total amount of what you're um, looking to buy. So, you're contributing 10%. There, For some lenders, they clip a little insurance on there to protect themselves. Mm. So, understanding if paying a little bit of lender's mortgage insurance will actually increase your purchase price and get you into the market you want to be in, that's a personal decision but can be guided by a broker. The other part to that is with your deposit is to understand and being able to leverage, if you can, a guarantor loan. Mm. So a guarantor loan, a broker can definitely go into more depth of the complexities about it. But at a high level, it's understanding if you can use mum and dad or mum or dad, family member, their home as security against a loan that you don't actually need to physically have in cash, it's actually to do with their equity and can really boost you into another bracket of the market.
1: Yeah. And I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, We mentioned it earlier, getting that deposit Mm. is the struggle. And because a lot of you are probably going nuts going, I can afford a flipping X amount mortgage for the same rent that I'm paying now. So, we need to be extra strategic and not being afraid to use lenders mortgage insurance. Yeah. Or a parental guarantee. Totally. Or if you've got a, an uncle or aunt who's you know stable and it's all good. So, I think that's the whole thing, right? Like, at different times calls for different measures. Yeah. But I will say, if you have a parental guarantee or a family guarantee, be prepared that that might be on the property for some time. Yep, It's not a... 12 months later, the property's gone up a million dollars. And so, you just have to really walk through with your broker. Mm. And if you need a good mortgage broker, you can go to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help. And I can introduce you to a a specialist in first home buyers who will take the time and go through that with you. But I think that's the biggest thing, isn't it?
2: Mm. That you need to work out how, what your options are and leverage them safely Mm. to the best of your ability. So that's tip number one is try and beef up that deposit in any way possible as quick as you can to help because that's the common barrier. Um, Number two, once you've got that and you've got your pre-approval, I mean that's a tip in itself to get your pre-approval, you know, understand what you can afford before you go shopping, would be, and this is a mindset piece, is understand that your purchase that you're going for right now is the best possible option with the circumstances you're currently faced with. It's not forever. Mm -hmm. It may not be what your best friend's buying. It may not be what your brother or sister has bought. But so many times I hear talk amongst first home buyers comparing their purchase or someone else's purchase to theirs. And it's a downward spiral if you start doing that, like stick in your lane, you're where you're at for a very good reason. So make sure you're proud of that and stick with it.
1: I think it's important to note that, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday and she was saying, oh, a friend of mine was like, they bought a a first home, but they've just got back from like overseas and they've got this first home and it's wild. Like they bought right in the city or like just outside of Brisbane. And I don't know how they can afford that. And I said, huh." people always post on Instagram, Mm. I bought this first home and you're like, what? You're 24 and what? You just got your grad job. Again, there's two sides of every story. Yes, they could have been saving since they were 16-year-old and be well and truly cashed up, really great with their money and all that. They could have got a parental guarantee. Totally. Their parents, and I've seen this so many times when I was a financial advisor, I've seen the social post of Mm -hmm. these people going, we've just bought a new home. And that would come into my office, like in my friend networks. (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm scratching my head. I'm like, how the hell did you do that? I'm going to know. Oh, the parents own half of it. So, we just have to, yeah, be very keep in your lane, right?
2: Definitely. It's not
1: easy, but it's worth it.
2: Totally. And it's your property journey. No one else's. Mm. So, at the end of the day, you just got to be content at where you're at and focus on your journey.
1: Mm. What else?
2: Third tip would be to ensure you think of long-term as well. So, for a lot of first-home buyers, and I often speak to them around, you know, what's the next step after this one, if you've thought that far ahead? Is this a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, or 15? And more often than not, that property, they ultimately want it to grow so they can springboard into their next one, what we call a stepping stone property, but they really, if they can, they usually say, "If we can, we'd like to hold it as an investment property." So you need to think about that. What does that look like in five, seven years' time? Is this a good place that will attract tenants? Is there things we need to do to enhance the property to make it more attractive? And what rental return, you know, based off today's figures, could we expect? If you are just treating it as your own home, um, particularly when it comes to updating things and renovations, you may overcapitalize. Uh, and it might not be realised for some time. But definitely think about the long-term plan of that particular purchase and what you ultimately want it to do because that actually will, in some cases, make property A be better than property B. Mm.
1: Does your first homeowner course go through the process and what a conveyancer does and all that stuff?
2: Yes, definitely. Having your A team around you, so conveyancer, building and pest, all that sort of... And
1: honestly, guys, like if you are actually serious about buying your first home, there has to be some, like, there has to be some sacrifice. It's not easy and it's getting harder. So, let's keep out of consumer debt. Let's make sure if we're renting at the moment that it's under, well under 30%. You know, if you're, if you're part of your strategy, if I can have a rant here, <laughs> I'm just adjusting myself, I'm sitting back down, He's everyone. He's getting ready. <laughs> if part of your strategy is to get a first home to live in, and not rent vest. And we all, I'll move on from what rent vesting is. It's basically I'm buying in a different part of Australia or whatever, and I'm going to rent in the city. Okay. So, part of your strategy is to move into that home. You've got to have the mindset that renting is camping and it's temporary.
2: I like that analogy. Renting is camping.
1: Yeah. And we can't spend all our money on bloody rent because it's temporary. Mm-hmm. There needs to be con- some, some concessions. Before I bought my house, I lived on the main... And everyone who lives on the Central Coast, I lived at tumbi on Wyong Road or... Yeah, it's called Wyong Road still. Um, the inside, it was low light. The flooring was like an orange terracotta. The wall was orange. I called it the terracotta soul-crushing nightmare from hell. <laughs> it was crap. No parking, busy road, every... Drunk, idiot, walking up like it was horrendous, but it wasn't forever. It was temporary. It was camping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, again, if it is your strategy and you've got 30 grand of equity in your car, do we sell the car and downsize the car for a hot minute to get into the property? Because you can always buy another bloody car. Totally. So, you've got to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And seriously, if you are serious... Invest the $150 into the course, education.mymillennial.money. And this is an ad. I'm bloody advertising
3: this.
1: (laughs) Yes, Emily will make money from this. She's worth it. She wouldn't be in our world if she was useless. Trust me. So, I'm serious, guys. Like, we have to do the opposite of what others are doing. Other first home buyers in your sphere will not be doing the course that Emily's doing. They're just not. And- I just want to say, if you have recently bought your first home and you've got a testimony, put it up in the Facebook group so other people can see and be encouraged. Let us know what your sacrifice was. Like it's awesome when you've got the brand new house and it's all good. But can you say, hey, we didn't go out for brunch eight (laughs) times a week (laughs) while we were saving. Like let us know your sacrifice because we've all had to sacrifice I hated living at Tumbiumbi on Wyong Road in the terracotta soul-crushing nightmare from hell. It was so bad. The real estate agents, they were useless, so bad. Worst people ever. The landlord was so tight. They didn't charge us water for the four years we were there. When we were moving out, they said, oh, we didn't charge you water. You owe us $300. I said, get stuffed. It was in our contract that uh, we didn't have to pay. So, shove your price up your ass. And they took us to the tribunal, and I went, Bring it on, baby. Not paying. Like it was the worst experience, but it was a sacrifice. Oh, Very
2: passionate. I
1: didn't end up having to pay because it was legally, I didn't have to. I love it. Wild, right? But don't shake me down over $300. Get stuffed. We, Sorry, are your neighbors thinking, why is there a guy yelling about water?
2: Passionately <laughs> yelling in the office. We had a very good interview on the My Millennial Property podcast of Douglas, who literally lived in his dad's garage, his dad's garage, and drove his dad's car wherever he had to go while he was saving. He only just bought himself. A car, like a crappy car, he said. Mm. About four grand on a car. I can't imagine what that equals. But uh, yeah, like that you do have to sacrifice. But short-term pain, long-term gain, people. Mm. You know, we don't need this instant gratification constantly. We can actually delay it mm. for a bit to, um, like life is long, right? Totally. You know, like a year doing something that you don't really like mm. to get to where you want to be, not that bad.
1: Yeah. It's not easy, but it's worth it. What's your sacrifice? You might have more than one sacrifice. Mm. The harder you sacrifice, the bigger your results will be. Simple life equation. It's easy to say. Absolutely, it's easy to say. It's bloody hard to do. Totally. And I can tell you the amount of nights I'll get woken up by some guy yelling at the front of my street. (laughs) I mean, our window sills, you couldn't open the windows or there'd be like this sheen of black from (laughs) exhaust. Like it's the busiest road on the central coast. Like I have sacrificed when I was renting before I owned any property. Like I'm not above this crap. Everyone's like, oh, Glenn, you're so successful. How dare you? I'm like, no, I sacrificed. I worked hard. Anyone
2: can do this. Stuff happened before that. You know, it's the totally. story beforehand. Everyone has some level mm. of sacrifice. and
1: So, yeah. before we go, just yes. back to the buyer's advocate thing. Um, but please, everyone, if you are serious, there's a link in the show notes. Please, the first home buyer course with Emily. We'll put a link in the show notes, education.mymillennial.money. It'll be worth every cent and much more. Just as a case study, we've got to do it before. Maybe this line here, mm-hmm. can you just give us an example? Because they've got a budget. They're
2: podcast listeners.
1: Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, hello. <laughs>
2: Glenn's and we just bought for them.
1: <laughs> okay, so tell us about them anonymously.
2: Like, yeah, they're um, an awesome, lovely couple who were living, um, looking to move back to Melbourne, living in regional Vic at the moment, and uh, both in medical, and they... Basically, listen to the podcast and then stalk to me on Instagram and call me
1: the property podcast yeah like the, this one the property
2: podcast I'm pretty sure Ew. and um, anyway, we knew it was going to be a hard profile, and they had two types of properties either a townhouse or a single front of victorian. Um, my colleague found two off market properties in the first week working together one was a townhouse and one was an older townhouse
1: and the and- suburb how far of away is that from like The CBD, like Federation Square, 10 minute drive, 15 minutes. Yeah,
2: super close, like 10 minute drive. Yeah, Yeah. and
1: their budget was 1.5 to 1.8. Yeah. Which, and again, if everyone's listening having an aneurysm at that, you've got to realize the average listener income of My Millennial Money is $90,000. Right, yeah. So if you're still building your career, you'll get there. Trust me. But let's just um, understand that. Yeah. So, we've got two solid incomes in the medical world. Yes. Um, yeah, cool.
2: Yeah. And so, the only biggest criteria with this is um, one of them being contractor. The pre-approval ran out by a certain date. We had to buy before a certain date or they would have to wait till next year. Oh, gosh. And so, we found this property ticked every single box. And, yep. But we had a one that was very similar that also ticked every single box. Anyway, came down to the two of them. Off market, uh, only us and one other buyer. The other buyer didn't want it. We got it. Awesome. Well within budget.
1: What was it like? 1. 1.6,
2: 1. 1.5? One, no, 1.7-ish. 1. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, it
1: was it was in budget. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. What well, you pay for people. And this is a funny law, right? I always think about this when I land in Melbourne because I'm in Melbourne recording this. I walk, I get off the plane, I walk out with my bag and I walk past the red sky bus thing that's probably $14 and I get into an Uber, sometimes an Uber premium. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Um, And I'm like driving into the city and I'm like, the law of the universe is you pay for convenience. Totally. Like I could have paid $14, whatever it is for the sky bus into the city, Mm -hmm. but it would have had to wait. At 10 p.m. last night.
2: And share with everyone.
1: Share with everyone, all that stuff, not as fast. Yeah. Um, where, you know, I've got the money yep. so I can pay for the convenience of Uber. Totally. And that's a choice. Yep. No one's making me do Uber. Mm-hmm. No one's making me do Skybus. Mm-hmm. I could get a cab, which is might be probably the same price as Uber. Yeah. So, you pay for convenience. And if you are after a buyer's advocate anywhere in Australia- reach out to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help. I might add a field in there Mm -hmm. after a buyer's advocate because I know John does stuff. So, the difference between you and John, Pigeon, as a buyer's advocate is because he does that service with Envisage Property. He
2: does. And lots of people don't realise that and people Mm. should definitely know that. So, John uh, does a lot of investment purchasing and I think he also does buy home central to where he is, but primarily investment buying in different pockets of Australia. Whereas I just do home buying in a particular pocket of Melbourne. So, think John, think investing, think Emily, think homes.
1: Yeah. If in doubt, reach out and uh, we can put you in touch with Emily, John, or I'll probably send you Emily anyway and she'll have other contacts (laughs) if John doesn't. Sounds
2: like a plan. All
1: right, everyone. Thank you so much for hanging out with us on the podcast today. And thank you, Emily, host of My Millennial Property. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye.